Entering the hive of scum and villainy. I love democracy. Colonial Senate will no longer be of any concern to us. My allegiance is to the Republic, to democracy! Rebellions are built on hope. Your focus determines your reality. Luke, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent, and this is the Election 2020 Rebel Alliance Situation Room Round Table episode. We are going to be talking about our most recent episode, as well as the 2020 election. It is finally upon us, and we've got some great guests here to break it down today for us. I am joined on the round table, at this round table, on it, at it, I don't know, by Joe Tavano, founder and editor-in-chief of RetroZap.com, host of the RetroZap podcast network, Beltway Banthas included, and he's the host of Brews and Blasters and Dunecast, and says of his politics upon joining the panel, he was a Republican from 1998 to 2010 and a Democrat 2010 to the foreseeable future. And we're joined by Gabby Martin, attorney at law and communications director for the Connecticut House Democrats campaign. Gabby and Joe, welcome to Beltway Banthas. It's good to be here. Stephen, great to be here. Well, it's always nice to hear new voices. And Joe, you haven't been on Beltway Banthas in quite some time. Uh, it's very nice to have you back, particularly as, you know, something of a godfather to Beltway Banthas. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Gabby, first time guest. I, I want to just, uh, just say hello again more formally to you because, you know, I think we just sort of met through mutual Star Wars and politics Twitter friends. And, you know, I've always believed that Beltway Banthas is sort of a niche operation where we sort of really appeal to this narrow swath of fandom who like consider the politics to be sacred and not something to be hidden from. And uh, I guess I just want to ask you, like, when did you become sort of a Star Wars politico? When did those two things collide in your fandom? Um, I I think it came kind of incidentally. Um, I've always been a Star Wars fan. I grew up with the prequels and um, recently have gotten into, uh, well, I've been into politics for all my life, but started working for the Connecticut legislator and being open with my Star Wars fandom love, um, has really given me this unique perspective of kind of drawing people out of the closet, um, and drawing these Star Wars fans that were not necessarily, you know, open about it. And so I've kind of created this safe space and, you know, people come up. I mean, the majority leader of our house is a huge Star Wars fan and asks me about Star Wars stuff that I do and, you know, other people that I run into. So I've become known as this kind of inter inter um, connectedness between Connecticut politics and Star Wars. So it's great. That's that's so great. And I uh, the Beltway Banthas was born in Raleigh, North Carolina, sort of conceptually. Um, 
And it was mostly because I had just become so familiar with the Star Wars fandom and the way it moved through the Raleigh, um, you know, state house. And uh, Jason Sane in the North Carolina legislature, he represents uh, Mecklenburg, sort of around Charlotte, North Carolina. His entire office is just full of Death Star memorabilia um, and Imperial swag. Uh, and then you also have Senate Majority Leader in North Carolina, Phil Berger, whose dogs are both named, uh, I think, Obi-Wan and the other one is Kenobi. Um, and it's just it's just one of those things that you find it allows you to build friendships in the state legislature in ways that you might normally not have been able to. <laughs> you know, people people would come by Jason Sane's office and just be like, hey, I brought you this new action figure. Could we talk about something substantive? <laughs> it's just a, a way to open the door. You know, it's funny, uh, Stephen, I work in the um, in the tech industry uh, during the day and um, anytime I've ever like started a new position at a, at a, at a job, I actually did that this uh, earlier this year, pre COVID and, um, bringing in star Wars memorabilia into the office is something to, it's like you, you throw your flag down and just invite people to start talking to you. And it, it really does open doors to, to start having conversations and, um, you know, meeting people and, and just kind of breaking down barriers. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really does like you know, you just meet these people that when you're open, they become comfortable to be like, yeah, I love star Wars too. Like I, I think it, for me, it was kind of my, I threw my flag down when I wore my star Wars face mask to the floor of the chamber during our (laughs) special session. And it was like this, everybody was just coming up to me being like, Oh, is that star Wars? Is that star Wars? Like, Oh, that's Chewbacca, all this kind of stuff. So So it was, that was my flag planting moment. (laughs) I just, I just really love that because star Wars is the most popular film franchise in the world, but it still catches people somewhat off guard sometimes when you, in a professional setting, fly your flag. And they're like, I am dying to talk to you about this, man. I, and, and it's usually like casual fans, right? It's just like people who their life doesn't revolve around Star Wars, but it means a lot to them. And I find that those people are almost more enjoyable to talk Star Wars to than, you know, like the deep fans who take it, you know, very, very, very seriously. And it's changed my life to fly the flag in my professional setting. Um, I remember my dad said to me over dinner, and and it's not it wasn't bad advice, but when I first started this podcast, he was like, don't let it distract you from your work. And I was like, okay, dad, I, I won't, I won't. And fast forward four years. Bellway Banthas has like become my career. <laughs> and it's just, it's just weird. Like, and it's it's just funny what happens when you are authentically you and yep. you just let yourself be your be who you are in professional settings. I think it pays off. I think that's going to be uh a look at the future. Um, I think post-COVID, I think that a lot of the trappings of what was considered professionalism are sort of eroding. And that's going to be um they're not coming back in a lot of ways. I, I don't think that um, we're going to see a less authentic experience if and when people are returning to the office in, in the way that we did before. Joe, I want to ask you a question before we get into uh, the meat of this episode, which was when you were sort of telling me a little bit um, about wanting to come on and you mentioned like some of your your actual like partisan background and I rattled it off <laughs> kind of crudely at the beginning of the episode. Um, you said you were a Republican from 98 to 2010. Uh, so I kind of assume that that means you sort of grew up, um, you know, being like a, a New England Republican. And then 
then you switched to Republican or Democrat at 2010 to the foreseeable future. What was the what was the animating change for you? Why did you make the switch? Uh, so I was a Republican because Alex P. Keaton on Family Ties was a Republican and I was a young boy who watched a lot of TV. So I thought that was great. Um, <laughs> and, and also because Ronald Reagan said Death Star. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Star Wars. He had a Star Wars initiative, so I thought that was awesome, too. So that mm -hmm. pretty much sealed it up for me. And then I actually, um, when I became of voting age and choosing a political party, I thought that the personal individualism um, of the Republican Party and the um, the focus on re fiscal responsibility and um, I think that sort of self-reliance is something that is easily gravitated to when you're, uh, you know, 18 years old. So I yeah. registered Republican and I clung to the idea of um, the traditional Republican um, values um, mm -hmm. for quite a while. Um, you clung to the idea that Mitt Romney was what it meant to be a Republican. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think I ever voted for Romney. <laughs> I, I, right, I, right. I, I did vote for Bush twice and I regret it. Um, but I, I voted for Obama as a Republican because I think I was eroding that at that point. Um, yeah. I switched to becoming a Democrat. Oh, I will say one thing too, before that, uh, my whole family was Democrats. They've always been Democrats. They always will be Democrats. Everyone going backwards. I, I was, uh, I was the weirdo. Um, but yeah. So you kind of rebelled against that a little bit. A little um, bit yeah. Yeah. Well, Gabby, I want to, I want to just get briefly your backstory as well. Um, what's your sort of like partisan history? Were you, were you always a, a solid Democrat? What, uh, what got you to where you are today politically? No, it's so funny that that Joe says that he's he comes from a family of Democrats. I am from a family, an area of Cuban Republicans, Cuban American Republicans. Like that's that's my background. Okay. Um, In who, Connecticut? You know, no, I'm I'm originally from from South Florida. So okay, I um, fi I figured by the the Cuban Cuban yeah. family you're from Florida. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. So I'm I'm originally from South Florida. Um, I moved up to Connecticut for law school, but, um, so my entire family, you know, uncles, extended family, all Republican, like that's just the way things were. Um, and the area, you know, everybody kind of has that kind of hive mind of, of what it means to be, you know, a Cuban American Republican. Um, and then going to college and then coming up to law school, I think it was really in law school that I started, you know, when I did, um, civil justice work and, and, you know, getting more into activism shifted me more from, I was always kind of like an independent nonpartisan affiliation. And then when I, when I got to law school, that was when I, I kind of swung towards Democrat and being heavily involved as an activist. And I actually became a, a Democrat. I had to file for unemployment during the, um, during the recession. I realized I was, I was out of work. I was laid off and I filed for unemployment and it it saved my life. It helped me get back to school and um, earn earn my degrees. And it it was one of it was a profound profound experience for me. And yeah, I realized that you know my my family wasn't wrong after all. And understanding that government can do and is more important um, than I ever ever realized. And from that day on, I was I was. Uh, completely convinced of everything that I already 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 sort of knew. Right. I have my I have my own personal experience with the safety net, and I, I can't say it 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 didn't move me out of the Republican camp, but it completely changed who I was. Um, 
when I, when I had that experience and I'll talk about it on the podcast some, some other time, but no, I, I totally, I totally feel that. I, um, now we've kind of got some of that, that down, I want to back into our episode here. Um, so this episode for everybody listening, this is a new format that we're trying out to accompany our monthly episode model. Our, our first episode like this was an hour long exploration of how democracy could die in America. And if star Wars is the best model for understanding that. And then we did a round table chat with friends of the show to kind of dig into that episode a little bit. So this month, our main episode, Episode was with David French of The Dispatch, and we dug into his new book, Divided We Fall, uh, plus some Rogue One and Episode 4 analogies um, about and, and sort of based around what goes wrong when every election feels like a life or death affair. And this broadcast that we're doing today is a companion roundtable episode to that. Um, and so I guess I have to ask to begin because we're taping this on November 1st. Election day is November 3rd. Are y'all ready for the most important election of our lifetime? <laughs> I just want it to be done. <laughs> I just, I'm counting down to November 4th. <laughs> it's, it's a stressful time. I, I mean, Gabby, you, you're working in the Connecticut house. Are you sort of like on the ground, um, you know, with folks running for reelection in your state legislature? Is that kind of what's got you the most stressed out? Or are you really watching CNN and this national election with your teeth grit? Um, Kind of both, which is very sad. Um, I've gotten to the point where I'm eating, sleeping politics. Um, my day politics is working with uh, our state candidates for House. So that's 151 races, 151 candidates, um, either running for re-election or challenging seats. Um, and then my brain is so in this kind of in the weeds, if you will, um, that I'm on YouTube when I'm not doing campaign stuff, watching videos, breaking down the election or breaking down campaign ads or, you know, following the national election. So it's, it, it's really sad where I'm at right now. That's why, <laughs> that's why I want November 4th to just be here so I can, you know, kind of get back to a little bit of normalcy. Yeah. I, I, I could imagine that for you, um, November 4th is going to be a big shift because of, of the nature of your job. But I think for the, the, the rest of the country, you know, nothing really changes on November 4th. Um, Donald Trump isn't going to be sent to a different dimension. Um, Republicans aren't, you know, going to go away. Mitch McConnell is still going to be pushing his agenda right up until January, you know, or longer. Until you can find all of his horcruxes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but there's one thing about you know, every election being the most important, is this the most important election ever? Um, you got me thinking a lot. And I have to, th I, I think that, you know, us growing up in the 80s and 90s, you know, that was perhaps the most politically stable period of the United States ever, literally ever. And um, I think that we grew up in a great fallacy that democracy was strong. The founders knew that, like, democracy was a very fragile thing. And I I think that when we grew up, we somehow thought we moved beyond that, that it was sta more stable now than it, than it was. Um, but the fact that the U.S. is, uh, the survival of the U.S. is on the line every two years. And it's not that this election is more important than every other. It's that we take the American experiment for granted. Every election is literally the most important one because 
as we've seen the past four years, it only takes one term to destroy so much. I'm I kind of have a different perspective because I I'm a millennial. I was born in 93. So even though I was politically conscious for a 10 year old, um, I um, the big kind of moment that I remember is, you know, 9-11 and post 9-11. And so I'm of the generation and probably this is probably worse with, you know, Gen X, Gen X, Gen Y, whatever these young people are called. Um, but that you kind of become desensitized, right? That everything's, it's like, you know, I kind of remember Y2K and it was like, the world's going to end. Then it was like 9-11, the world's going to end. You know, the, the Mayan or Aztec calendar, the world's going to end. Bird flu, world's going to end. Like it, it's all this kind of like, you know, is it going to end? And then the day that it's supposed to end, the world keeps spinning. Right. And, you know, I had that same kind of reaction in 2016. It was like, okay, we cried. It wasn't the outcome we wanted, but like the world kept spinning. Like, you know, it's just kind of a shift in focus. It's not, I never buy into that. This is the most important election of our time because it's just become desensitized. It's, it's just not, it doesn't have the impact. Yeah. I I don't think, I don't think it's easy or, 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 or works for me to take seriously that, that trope every time I hear it on television. Um, you know, when we all, studied, you know, a civil war that this country had in in 1860, like nothing, nothing compares to that. And, you know, granted, they, they say it's like the most important election in our lifetime. And even then I go back to like 1980 or the 1960 election and go like, all right, it's, it's not more important than those two elections were in terms of geopolitics and the direction of the world. But I think I identify it with what Joe laid out, which was just an understanding at our, at our base foundations in this country that democracy is fragile. And we sort of all grow up with this idea that it is um, just this presumed strong and natural thing. And maybe it's sort of me adopting too much of like the Vladimir Putin-esque skepticism of the West. But I think like people like Putin and, and Xi Jinping and China, they understand something that has a longer history than the United States, which is that democracy is a blip on the radar of human history. <laughs> um, the, the, the longer course of human history is strongman rule. And it's, it stands to reason that democracy is highly breakable. Um, all you have to do is undermine uh, the people's trust in the, the system as it might actually work. So I, I, I've just started to really believe that this is uh, more in danger than I think we we often give credit for. Yeah, and and I think you made a good point, Stephen, in the podcast, which is if you're not paying attention to the pr- powers the president has, and you know he can appoint a Supreme Court, he can pass down executive executive orders. You know he has control over all these executive agencies. Like if you're not paying attention to that kind of control and realizing like the person you are interviewing every four years has this broad scope of powers, you're not, you're not getting it. Like you're not paying attention enough or taking it seriously enough or, you know, that this is the kind of what goes with the job. You know, I I grew up with the threat of nuclear war literally every day. Um, it, it, we felt it, you know, and that was in the eighties. Um, it was very much on the table. And I, I think that, you know, with a different person 
at the helm of the government, who knows what would have happened? I'm not saying Ronald Reagan was great or anything, but um, we didn't go into nuclear war. And that literally was something that was on our minds, um, even as children growing up. Um, I think I think you did. You know, I have to agree with Gabby. I think you really did have a point about the increasing um, powers of the presidency. And, you know, what's going to be done to keep those in check in the future? Because there's 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 so much that this president has tested and so much that he has um, been able to do on his own without any um, congressional oversight. And frankly, he's got away with crimes as well. So I think that there is a reform. There's a reckoning coming, um, if not a reform. Yeah, I mean, if I were to sum up, <coughs> if I were to sum up the episode that we just did in short, basically, I, I tie the film Rogue One to the Flight 93 moment essay from 2016, which we can talk a little bit about, which, you know, making the case that for as long as we have a central government whose power and reach feels like a shadow looming over localities to build worlds that reflect their values, that the Flight 93 mentality we saw rear its ugly head in 2016 is just going to be the beginning. We're going to see it more and more and more going forward uh, until our eventual undoing. And that the Death Star as a weapon of force or coercion to win the submission of the galaxy actually just rallied dissidents and united the opposition against Palpatine. You know, you had this like really ugly and fractious rebellion that the Death Star then served as their reason to go, oh, well, okay, well, we got to put a lot of our differences aside and and fight and end this. And, you know, I, I guess I just sort of look at like the the way the way things are right now when people talk about the the state of our politics and how intense they are. It feels to me like every four years, it's that that room on Yavin 4 where the rebellion is like talking about the life or death stakes of, of standing up to the empire. And it's it's not sustainable. And the, the Flight 93 essay, oh. who we now know is written by this guy, Michael Anton, if you're not familiar with it, you really need to just look it up. Flight 93 election. And it'll be uh, it'll be in there either a write up by uh, by the Atlantic or fully published in the Claremont Review of Books, where this guy is arguing that the Democratic election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump represented a moment where terrorists had taken over the plane and Trump voters needed to charge the cockpit or risk death. And we're talking about Hillary Clinton here, like the the neoliberal queen. And it's you just go like, what? What kind of Kool Aid are you drinking to like make yourself believe that this is the life or death? But then again, we had Donald Trump now for four years, and, and it honestly feels like this has been a crisis. So I think that's sort of where the truth of that old saying comes in. Like, Donald Trump has had massive and damaging impact. The point is, you don't need a Death Star these days. All you need is a, is a good disinformation campaign. You need social media. If you, if you have social media, you don't need a Death Star, because all you can do is just spread the lie that a Death Star exists and you can get enough people to back you and start trying to kidnap governors and start doing these things and amp people up um, in a way with rhetoric that, that, that you, you, you'd never need to show the, show the, uh, the actual weapon. 
But you know, um, Joe, the the weapon the weapon is just the centrality of of the federal government, and, and this is a really old argument, I suppose, in the in the course of American life. But like, you know, Trump sent in federal agents, uh, un unmarked and an unnamed badged, into uh, Portland to scoop people up off the streets uh, who were protesting or rioting and the likes interrogate them and then dump them in other parts of town. And I'm just going like, okay, the Death Star is real. Like the, the federal government has this sort of power that is unspoken of that was given to it in the war on terror days and has not been given back. Yeah, You're, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, I, I think that goes back to the powers of the presidency. I don't think that the White House should be able to send troops um in in this country or abroad without um without congressional oversight i think that there is a severe severe break, breakdown of um of what makes us american uh in in being able to do that that is that is authoritative that is authoritarian gabby i want to work you in here i mean there there yeah. are instances of course where presidential power and executive leadership, of course, in retrospect, feels quite justified. I think I, I always, my mind always goes back to um, school integrations and the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that had to be done by force. And, and we'll get to the ugly side of federalism here. And I think that that's part of it. Um, but I mean, are, are you also feeling the same thing as a Democrat? Because this has always been sort of like a libertarian and conservative movement horse that we just sort of like be dead, um, you know, that we were scared of, of a centralized power in D.C., but I, I feel like Democrats get it now. Yeah, no, and, and I think I was I was thinking more along the lines of, of what you were saying, which is, you know, in like you see in Rogue One that kind of prior, almost prior to Donald Trump, the Democrats were constantly in that, you know, you have the the kind of Democrats of, you know, AOC and the progressives and Bernie and Warren. And then you have the kind of Pelosi Democrats who are like, no, let's kind of stay the line. Um, And then you have Donald Trump, who's this unifying like opposition that's like, okay, we have to get under the, there's no more of that tent kind of talk. It's like, forget people coming together under a tent. Like we have to unify to kind of fight instead of coming together for the sake of coming together. And I think what I found interesting is that, you know, you see Trump's presidency kind of as a unifying factor for Democrats, but then in kind of the later years as as, of his administration, as he's kind of done these more and more egregious things. And as Joe was saying, kind of test the limits of what a president can do, you almost have him as a unifying factor for some of the Republicans as well. Um, I mean, that's half of Joe Biden's campaign of saying like, I was a Republican, but like Trump's where I draw the line kind of thing. And, you know, I, I think of him blasting out protesters and then standing up with a Bible in front of a church and, you know, and kind of using these military powers. And I remember talking to my dad at the time and saying, you know, he kind of committed this kind of twofold sin, right? He's not only, um, attacking the first amendment right to peacefully assemble. Um, but he's also kind of maliciously using religion for a photo op. So that whole moment, you know, if it had to trigger a lot of people 
that were not Democrat that may not see a party line necessarily, but are just like, I don't like this guy. Like, I don't like what he's Gabby, I got to ask a sensitive um, question. Um, you mentioned your family um, of Cuban descent and, and their Republican leanings. Mm-hmm. Um, have they have they moved away uh, from from Trump throughout the por- course of his four years? Or were they ever on board? How's that gone in, in relation to what you were um, just talking about with the church incident? Yeah, no, my, my parents are both converted Democrats. Um, my family in Florida, um, I will say that it is still kind of fractured. It is still, um, you know, it, it has to do with, um, when you're in, in to give kind of context for people that say, you know, see Cuban Americans in South Florida and we're like, how can these people, how can they vote for Trump when he has all these kind of anti-Latino policies and and Mm. all of these kinds of things? And I think it's because in, in Miami, in that South Florida area, everybody, you know, you can go to all these stores. Everybody has a Spanish accent. Mm-hmm. Everybody speaks Spanish for the most part. The, the white, white Americans are in the minority. Um, people look like you, people sound like you. Um, there's not that kind of antagonist antagonism. I can't speak to how it is now with the, the severe political lines. Cause I, I haven't been there in a while, but, but that's the thing. You don't kind of see that, it's, it's, it's its own little universe. And obviously Cuban Americans don't necessarily have the same, um, immigration issues that other Latinos face because of the wet foot, dry foot policy. So there's all these kind of issues that go into having this kind of bubble mentality in the South Florida area. Yeah. There's, there's Um, (laughs) with at risk of going down, down the wormhole of electoral politics. Like I, uh, I've learned something living in this neighborhood where I'm at in Northern Virginia, it's, um, 40% Hispanic here, which is, which is pretty new for me just in terms of, of being where, where I'm living. And it's been weird because I found out that like my Salvadorian neighbors hate my Mexican neighbors. Uh, they, they like, don't, (laughs) they don't like feel like they have anything in common. They won't even speak to each other and they both think lowly of each other. And it's like this weird dynamic that I'm caught in the middle of. And I've just been talking to the Salvadorian family and it's just like, it's just like, you know, it's just, it's just prejudice. Like, and it's just, people always find reasons to be prejudiced against one another. And there's not like racial solidarity um, that I think Democrats always thought there would be when it comes to the issue of immigration. <laughs> there's just, mm-hmm. there's just not every, every, every yeah. person has their own different sort of come to America story. And the wet foot, dry foot thing is a huge part of that as well as like, did you come from a socialist dictatorship? Yes or no. Uh, yeah. All those things factor in, but I'm, I'm just an observer. You're, you've lived it. So <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's my little soapbox is, is like, not just that immigration does not define the Latino vote, but also that everybody's immigration story looks different. And it also depends on if you're first generation, second generation, third generation, um, you know, how you came over. I, you know, I won't even touch on all the various issues with our immigration law system. Um, so that's, it's, it's whole, it's very convoluted and, and complex. Yeah. Have you guys, were y'all familiar with the flight 93 essay before I talked about it on the show? I was not. Vaguely. No. What was your reaction to that? Um, have you looked at it at all since, uh, since then? I have not. I think it's a bit of Republican rhetoric. Um, 
it's it's this fanning the flames that has been uh, it's been a, a a hallmark of the conservative platform um since the 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 mid 90s and i think that it it literally is just this this weaving of a yarn that has begun you know with with the um the talk radio movement that started then and it's just escalated and escalated and escalated you can draw a line from rush limbaugh up to the proud boys of today um with, with this, these mentalities and it, it really I, I i really think that that's that's pretty much all it was and i i sort of dismissed yeah it yeah no and time. i think it i think um, it deserves to be sort of dismissed on on the face but then like you just very nicely pointed out the the through line which is like the talk radio um uh to the grassroots movements of today like the conservative movement has been priming its audience for decades now on the idea that like everything behind the scenes is illegitimate, um, that, that you've got this cabal of people like the deep state, the media, the democratic party, all working together to push them out of society and, and, and take away their representation. And at a certain point, and again, like I grew up in this and there are elements of it that I think are just like play, but then at a certain point, it's not funny anymore. <laughs> and, and people eventually mm-hmm. start to take it super seriously. And at a certain point, I, I don't know where it stopped being funny. And you actually do have people that go, the country's been taken over by the CIA. If we don't stop Hillary Clinton now, it's all over. Like you have to be completely wrapped up in sort of this like tongue in cheek n- uh, propaganda to believe that. I'm going to throw it over to Gabby, but I, I, I just have to say, I think it's all founded in racism. I really think it all comes back to that. Yeah. And, and I think too, you know, you made the, the line between, you know, the, the talk radio shows. And I think what those shows have been doing have, and, and I noticed this doing, um, communications is for, for campaigns is, is the Republicans and the conservatives and, and especially the far right side, um, have these keywords that have led into this Donald Trump, you know, dog whistle politics type thing. They have those keywords of deep state, you know, um, the cabal, the, you know, the, all these kinds of words of liberal snowflakes, you know, all these kinds of words that trigger people that have gotten so in the weeds of these theories that it immediately kind of alerts and, and kind of rallies this whole group of people, um, to their cause and to, you know, this way of thinking. And it's, a, it's almost a way of communicating without communicating. It's, it's just bizarre. It's very, strange. my, my first political like movement that I, I was somewhat part of, I was just like coming of age politically, um, when the tea party was taking off and it was sort of wrapped in this idea, you know, by, by nature of its name, you know, like the Boston tea party and this real adherence to the founders and people cosplayed as, you know, like the different founders and, and guys in white wigs, right? Like that was a big, that was a big part of it. And it was this, it was this sort of just, uh, uh, love, I think, for the original founding of the country. And then you sort of back up from it many years down the road and it's it's it appears, one, more ugly than it was at the time. It wasn't cute. Um, and two, at this point, 
they've moved away from that idealism and towards none of this is real. Like the, it's the QAnon theory, right? It, it sort of encompasses, it encompasses all of the paranoias because it's a malleable conspiracy theory that works to embody all of the other ones. And so you have all these people who, I don't know, like I used, I would have like been on Twitter talking to them about, um, you know, the founding principles, but now they're just like wrapped up in, in, you know, the country's been stolen by the deep state. Um, and it's, it's sad because they, they at least used to believe in something. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, is there something to the American oligarchy and are there weird things that go on in secret? Of course there are. The Bohemian Grove yeah. is a real place. I didn't know that till this that week, shouldn't... actually. I, I actually listened to that Alex yeah. Jones podcast with uh, with Joe Rogan and they got to the Bohemian oh Grove God. part and I went, wait, the thing from House of Cards? <laughs> yes, yes. I knew about it beforehand. I, I learned about it from House of Cards. Oh my That's God. Right. Anyways, um, continue. Sorry. Yeah, but it, 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 that that does exist historically. But I mean, to get away from that, I mean, I when you talk about the Tea Party and this this reverence for the founders, um, the founding fathers weren't even that impressed with one another or with what they right. did. They thought they, they this idea that we need to harken back to something before they didn't think it really worked well. Then they were trying to make literally a more perfect union. And that was through the progression of our laws and of our constitution. Something that now we take as sacred was something that they thought of as needed consistent and constant update. I want to I want to move us on to the issue of balance. So I think we all on this podcast and at this roundtable feel like our politics is out of balance, that something is just wrong. Um, how do you think about Star Wars lore and what it means and what it means to balance the force? Because I suppose even though he had become a bit too jaded and disconnected from his moral compass, like Luke Skywalker was right in The Last Jedi when he was teaching Rey about balance, that the light and the dark must both exist, that the Jedi didn't own the light, that they became vain over time. And I always go back to the Jedi prophecy of a chosen one that brings balance to the Force by destroying the Sith. And I wonder, how the heck did the Jedi come to think of dominating their opponents and making them not exist anymore as being balanced? And I have a reason for asking this that ties back into our conversation that we're having. But what is your opinion of the prophecy of the Force uh, and the idea of balance? I always thought it was complete BS because it, it just seemed too good to be true. And like you said, Stephen, it made no sense that to have balance would be to just eliminate the Sith entirely. And I think, you know, when you, when you first think about it, you're like, okay, well maybe the Sith is like this kind of cancer that they have to eradicate and, and, you know, just kind of this darkness. But when, when you think about it more kind of broadly, it, this force to bring balance to the force makes no sense because you know everything has an opposite matter antimatter you know dark light all of these kinds of things they have to have a balance balance means being equal um so it just it never made complete sense to me joe yeah okay so um the prophecy of the chosen one was created by the dark side to actually sow imbalance because in reaction to the sith 
the Jedi took control and sought to dominate because they saw that or thought that the light side was the natural state of the force and the dark side should be vanquished. We obviously know that's not true by the time of the last Jedi, because we see that uh, Luke Skywalker is at the, fir- at the first Jedi temple talking about powerful light, powerful darkness. There is a balance there. And we start to think about the dark side in a different way, which is that we think about it being about passion and about, um, you know, desire and love things that the Jedi have had forgotten about in their pursuit of something pure so there's a lot wrapped up in that in terms of symbolism, white ivory tower sort of ideas there. And there, there's um, this, you know, th- this conundrum that the Jedi have where they are fighting against some, a, a, a shadow enemy that they can never truly defeat because it's only an organization, but the feeling and the, um, the energy that they want to defeat is, can never actually truly be destroyed. So that leads to their downfall because it it weakens them from the inside. So by that respect, I'm on a tangent here. Um, what was <laughs> well? What I, have was a, the, I have a que- I have a question <laughs> about your your tangent. You you mentioned that the the prophecy was um, created by the Sith. Was that a fan theory or is that true? Um, I think it's a. You know, I, I'm not going to get into the citations, but I feel... <laughs> okay, Alex Jones. Very much. I don't want. <laughs> no, no. I, yeah, I know. I have the reference. Google um, it. You can find out. <laughs> it was the Sith. They created the it. prophecy. Um, no, I... I, Jeez. I, please, please, never, never uh, compare me to that animal ever again. Um, no, I, I think that... Um, if you if you look at the prequels, I think that you can you can see that there is some obvious manipulation of what the Jedi think um, from from Palpatine and and the the Sith tradition before him of creating this chosen one and manipulating the Force to actually uh, produce yeah. this this. Per- and you know, and I think that the whole thing about balancing the Force is so tough because the the Jedi, the light side of the Force encourages um, restraint. It encourages you to mm-hmm. to not seek things like power. Um, it encourages you to to sort of live without, and that allows the Jedi to flourish and to have like many in their numbers. It allows them to to have uh, more reach um, because they're not gobbling up everything that they see. But the dark side is different. The dark side is indulgence. It is growth of power. It is devouring whatever it is that you want that's in front of you. So it only takes too Sith to have the amount of force behind them that it might, like an entire Jedi order might have, like just in terms of like balancing the scales. Like we're just thinking about balance in the universe. Palpatine as an entity can throw the entire universe out of order as an individual because he's so power hungry. And, and like, it takes like an entire order of Jedi to kind of do the same. And at the end of the day, like the force balanced the Jedi. It knocked them all out because they were in fact out of balance. And then at some point, Palpatine also had to then be knocked down, too, because he was also an agent of imbalance. Gabby? Yeah, no, I I was just thinking, if you look at the prequels, the the original series uh, trilogy and and the sequels, it's almost like this this kind of old-time archetypical parable where, you know, the first... Think of it like three sons going after a dragon, right? The first son believes to do it this way and believes that bringing balance will be purity um, and all these 
these um, pure elements and and they fail. And then Luke Skywalker also doesn't get it right because um, he is too impassioned um, and he's not that it kind sounds of like the beginning one. of a Deathly Hallows uh, type story. <laughs> Yeah, and then it's no, it's it's only by the sequels that they kind of throw the po- prophecy away and actually look at the Force to see what the Force right. wills, and that they get it right, that they get the balance. I right. um, I I I watch a lot of these these kind of YouTube you know, like fan speculation theories, and and one that I actually have decided is the truth <laughs> is is that <laughs> what balance balanced the force by the end of the nine films was love that acts of love Mm. are what actually incur balance between the light and the dark that the Jedi met their ruin by blocking love from their ideology, that they disallowed people Mm -hmm. from feeling attachment and love and that that creates imbalances of its own and and see Anakin manifest that the dark side is also incapable of love. Like uh, Joe mentioned love earlier and he was talking, but really Sith can't love because they are, they only love themselves and they only love power and love requires giving and they can't give. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And so, like, love is the thing that both Jedi and Sith, in terms of their religions, disallow. Um, And when Kylo and Rey, and, you know, they they have a thing for each other, and in the book it said it was like a sibling-type love. But, like, Kylo Kylo and Rey... They kind of enact a a fondness for each other and through love are able to balance the force and destroy Palpatine, the ultimate agent of imbalance. And I went, ha, I think that's it. It's kind of cheesy, but I like it. (laughs) I'm glad it wasn't outright stated, but I think you're 100% right. Um, You know, when you look at the Sith religion, it's all about power and it's it's about this imbalance. Um, And you think about it and Mitch McConnell is is literally the perfect Sith. He is by any means necessary um, out to grab power. And when I think about it, the Sith are the death of moderation. They don't really think about anything in moderation at all. Everything needs to be to the extreme. It needs to be to to get the most to be the number one. And when you have one side that is looking for um, moderation or at least for the good of all and you have the other side that is looking for the good of one and amassing and collecting as much power as you want and the death of moderation you naturally have conflict and i think that's what you see in jedi versus sith not and so i think you're uh, i think you're a hundred you said i'm a hundred percent correct i'm gonna say you're a hundred percent correct about (laughs) mitch mitch mcconnell mitch mcconnell is like he represents this sort of motive within the republican party to use the rules as they exist to try to set back liberal democratic gains from the 20th century as far as possible using the tools that are available to them Uh, everybody everybody sort of like will deride mitch mcconnell but i think some of the like the smartest political analysts will say that like he does exactly what is rational, which is to do things that benefit his side. Um, and, and he pulls them off. And so I want to put to you both, the, the Democrats on this, this call here, um, 
you know, the Democrats are, are sort of lashing back in this moment. Like Trump has made made them feel awful about everything. Mitch McConnell is is frankly just notching win after win. Uh, the Supreme Court is sort of ground zero of those wins. And you have all of a sudden seen uh, liberal um, intellectual elites and, and Democratic politicians advocate for, one, getting rid of the filibuster, uh, openly advocating for the idea of packing the Supreme Court to set back Mitch McConnell's wins, and even in the Atlantic, regular arguments being made for the dissolution of the U.S. Senate as as an entity altogether. And so my question to you is, is this going to swing back the other way? And is the Democratic Party losing sight of the idea of moderation in favor of domination? I think, you know, part of it is a reaction to being too nice. Um, I think what has happened with the Trump republicanism is this kind of realization that party politics can be down and dirty. It can be divisive. It can be that kind of win by any means necessary type mentality. Um, And I think the, the Democrats are prepping for that. What I'm hoping is that once the dust settles and, you know, we get back to a a sense of normalcy, that the need to retaliate kind of fizzles out, that it's it's more kind of talk to seem as strong or as aggressive as the Republicans, but that it doesn't actually come to fruition, you know, that we remain that kind of thoughtful, intellectual um, party um, and not react the way the, the Trump Republicans have. Because I think, hopefully, we've seen the error of how kind of convoluted a party can become, you know, where, and I think Stephen, you mentioned this earlier, is that these, a lot of these kind of Trump followers and these conspiracy theorists, you know, there's no talking to them. There was a time when you could, you know, be a Democrat and talk to a Republican and kind of debate um, politics. But there's, there's some, you know, Republicans, far right people who you can't negotiate with them at all. You can't kind of hear their side. They hear your side, you know, and at the end of the day, you guys kind of walk your separate ways and whether you agree with each other, that's immaterial, but you've kind of understood each other. I hope that we've learned how a party can kind of become this monstrous thing. And we don't either party, either the Republicans recover from that or the Democrats are smart enough not to become that. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, Gabby. Um, I think, uh, Stephen, to your answer, the answer is no, I don't think that, um, that we should, or we will become, um, more hardlined like the Republicans have been because, uh, to, to your point, um, a few minutes ago, you said that, uh, Mitch McConnell, um, in political analysis, uh, what he's done is deemed rational because he does what by whatever needs to be done for the good of his party. Um, I think that the rationale of the Democratic Party is to do whatever is good for the best of the nation. And that is where there is a fundamental difference between the two parties right now. Um, I think that the Democratic Party welcomes a two party system and the Republican Party wants to literally own the libs um and vanquish it and would rather would prefer to have a one-party system um quite literally 
Um, so that that's where we are today. And I think if Joe Biden wins, his number one priority, even above COVID, is to be to really instill a moderate culture in in Washington as well as in the entire country. Um, that is his and priority. I and I think I think the the why well, I've kind of laid all this out right with like the the Jedi and the Sith and then and then you know kind of you took us very nicely to sort of Mitch McConnell and then the Democrats is you've painted I think Joe an, an optimistic picture of the Democratic Party is as one that like does not want you know to dominate entirely and that they, they want to like see a two two party mentality flourish and so like taking that idea that spirit out to the country at large. Um, you know, does the Democratic Party believe that it is within the rights of, of conservative leaning North Carolina to actually put into law that uh, biological men can only use the men's bathroom? Biological women can only use the women's bathroom without the NCAA or ACC or whatever pulling out and Democratic politicians piling on and imposing travel sanctions on North Carolina and can Arizona work more closely with ICE agents to handle immigration laws within the state without the Obama administration suing them and taking them to court for enforcing immigration laws that exists. And the reason I ask this is the idea of federalism. I mean, can we have a society where there are going to be red pockets of the country that do red things <laughs> and okay. have conservative lifestyles uh, and places where blue country does blue things um, yeah. and you have sanctuary cities and a free for all for, you know, whatever. Like, are we going to have a country where Democrats nationally Except that there are going to be conservatives part of the country and vice versa. Uh, we can. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Gabby, you go. No, I was just going to say, because like my my gut is like churning. My blood pressure rose when you were giving those examples. <laughs> yeah. uh, they're, um, they're, they're awful examples, they're but like they're but they're but they're real, though. <laughs> yeah, when, when you were saying that in, in the, the podcast, I was thinking that on the one hand, I'm, I'm in Connecticut, right? Yeah. And a lot of what we've done at the state level is kind of a reaction to the, the federal government not moving fast enough, right? You know, whether it's post uh, uh, Sandy Hook that we passed um, the kind of most yeah. stringent yeah. gun laws in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, recently, we passed, you know, very stringent uh, police accountability. Um, and so that's, I think, the ideal that you do those, but obviously that's democratic, right? That's, that's kind of blue social justice policies. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the ideal. But on the other hand, to think of it of like some states kind of curtailing these rights of, you know, whether it's, it's trans individuals, whether it's LGBT, whether, you know, whether it's abortion rights, all of that kind of stuff is just so fundamentally wrong <laughs> that mm -hmm. it's, it's just hard to kind of, merge the two together to find a happy medium somewhere will we become will democrats allow that sort of um government to proceed with the with with laws that that impede on people's civil rights um no of course not um what we need to be prepared for as a as a country is to be able to have laws passed that maybe not everyone agrees with but are in the best interest of the entire country. Um, and that is up for interpretation on both sides. Uh, the idea there and the fundamental thing is being able to pass laws. And I think that is really where the breakdown has 
um, come and the escalation towards extremism has been flourishing because of, I would say, the past 10 to 12 years of literally having government shutdowns and not being able to get actual agendas and laws passed in Congress. Um, where that starts, then you have this escalation through courts and you have courts which are, by the way, not supposed to be leaning any political way. Uh, now we have <laughs> literally a Supreme Court that is, uh, you know, liberal or conservative in their in, in the Supreme Court justices. Uh, I think I, I will always find it preposterous to have a Supreme Court judge that has a political um, leaning. I, I, I consider each and every one of them that do completely preposterous. It, it's 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 ridiculous. The the reason like I, I so I the, I brought up these sort of like culturally divisive issues being like the trans bathroom issue in North Carolina, um, immigration law in Arizona, because when I was sort of thinking about David French's solution that he kind of proposes in his big book and that we talk about in the episode, the idea that we need like a rediscovery of federalism. I was thinking about the light and the dark side of the force and the idea of balance and sort of dualism throughout pop culture and world religions. And you you kind of get like the yin and the yang thing, right? Like the two things balance each other out. The one can't exist without the other. And federalism, I was thinking is like, that is the thing in American life that I think has like this equal amount of potential for good and evil. It's this idea, it's this idea in principle that gives us the the ability to make space for one another um, and to have different parts of the country have, have different things available. But in the past, the, the availability thing has been like Bill of Rights is available to you in New York and it's not available to you in Georgia. Um, you, you had civil rights based on where you lived in the country. And that is obviously completely and totally wrong. We have not had a free country ever in American history, at least until 1960. And it's still only like a work in progress. I think that is, it fully has to be acknowledged. Okay. But the thing that is going to muddy this up and make it impossible to discover a new century of federalism, you know, where like Portland is just crazy Portland and Donald Trump can't do anything about it and he doesn't want to do anything about it because that's Portland, is that the idea of what are your rights is it's like moving target, right? You, you, meant, you mentioned Joe in response to like the bathroom issue, like, like rights. And, and I just, I don't know, like I'm a libertarian. I want no laws on the books regarding bathroom usage. I, I, it needs to be very clear in the context of this episode that I don't like laws governing what bathroom that you use. I think like we sort it out amongst each other. I think if you need a law that says you have to be a biologically male to use a bathroom, then you're nosy, like go to the bathroom and then leave. That's what you do. Um, and that's how I think about this stuff. But I also don't think it's unreasonable for North Carolina to have such a law on the books. It's North Carolina. That's what the majority of people in that state believe. And it's also a very, very new issue. The whole issue of like trans rights and, and recognition and visibility. And I, I just feel like New York and California are out way ahead of where most of the country think on this stuff. And maybe that means that they're imposing on people's civil rights, just like the people were before 1964. I, I don't know. I, th I think that's like maybe the, the key distinction between Democrats and Republicans um, or, or certainly more kind of liberal and conservative, because the way I think about it uh, of the civil rights is and just kind of human rights in general is 
these are rights that everybody should have, regardless of race, color, gender, sexuality, um, you know, whatever protected class you want to include in that list. Um, but to me, you should have those rights. And if something runs up, and maybe this is also the lawyer in me, if, if something runs up against that, right, if, if, if a state declares a law that says you can't use a bathroom um, because of your gender identity, then even if one person is affected by that law, the law should be struck down because it's it's interfering with one person's ability to go about their life. So I think that to me is is you know the kind of idea of these civil slash human rights that you should you should have these rights as kind of like a backpack or a or a or a cover that you can you can move through the world with that kind of protection, knowing you have these rights and knowing that they are not going to stop you from going about your daily life. Although I agree with you that it's stupid to have a law about a bathroom, but because people, because like the issue came up, now we have to kind of address it. Yeah. And it's, it's the most extreme stuff that ends up becoming like the national debates. Like, like I, I think there are all sorts of mundane things that we could have like a patchwork of laws around the country are and embrace the idea of federalism. Like maybe this state has no zoning laws and this state has tons of zoning laws, even like open carry, like you can open carry currently in Virginia, but when you go into DC, you cannot bring your gun with you. Those are all things that I think are like, okay, like this is fine. This is normal. Don't travel with your weapon across state lines. But like the trans issue, like my my wife's favorite musician and, and one of my favorite musicians is a transgender woman. And this issue kind of like became real to me when she was traveling to North Carolina and mentioned to everybody that like I was fine when I was two states away and I felt comfortable going to the bathroom in the bathroom, my choice, but I'm scared here. I feel like some guy in a red hat's going to pull me out and beat my ass. And, and that's, that's real. Like that's real life. Mm -hmm. And, and you can't have that kind of, of patchwork of safety across a country of 50 States. That's not fair. Yeah. Um, And that's where like you run up against that. It's not. And I think, yeah, I think that's the biggest issue with, having individual state rights. And I'll give you probably one of the most ridiculous examples, which is here in Connecticut, you don't have to wear a helmet to ride a motorcycle. <laughs> Yet in New York, Freedom. Mass, Massachusetts, and, and Rhode Island, you do. So uh-huh. if you are riding your motorcycle and you are one of those I need my helmet off because like I want the wind in my hair and I want to sing white snake and like whatever. <laughs> if you are driving through New York, you hit our, our Connecticut border. Mm-hmm. Um, you can take that helmet off and be, you know, freedom all the day long. And as soon as you hit the mass line or the, the Rhode Island line, you have to put that helmet back on because you cannot cross the border without getting a ticket. And it's, it's just kind of bizarre that it's that it doesn't allow you to move freely without your helmet. Although I think you should wear a helmet wherever you go, but you know, it's, it's just kind of silly. It's, it's kind of mundane and, and just, it prevents that freedom of movement. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Joe? Uh, there are there are uh, helmet laws like that in New Hampshire as well. There's no hel- There's uh, no helmet law in New-, in New Hampshire, and you literally see people when they hit the state line from Massachusetts to New Hampshire, take it off um, because they, re- they don't believe in live free or die. They, li- they believe in live free and die. Um, <laughs> and but it's, it's these, you know, the helmet and the bathroom, the bathroom conversation. These are. Um, these are fires that are fl- uh, that are fanned by conservative pundits who want to have people um, scared and challenged by this by threatening the status quo, and they impede a lot of uh, progression in civil rights. And I think that's that's a that's a major major problem. Um, I agree wholeheartedly with everything that uh, both of you said uh, with regard to trans rights, and I I I, I don't think that this country should be. Um, a patchwork of safety. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, 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 I went to Arizona once, and as a you know adult, straight white man, I felt myself very, very on guard. I felt very um, not. I didn't feel comfortable being in Arizona just because of how red of a state it was, and I was afraid that if someone saw my Italian last name, who knows, or or saw I was from Boston, and who knows what kind of hate I would receive just from that. So I can't imagine what it would be like being a trans person entering, you know, the South. I mean, that that's, that's off the charts. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. One thing I was going to say about um, your previous guest when it comes to federalism, um, I think that geographic value alignment, value alignment is eroding at a, at a unprecedented rate. Um, take, Massachusetts, for example, you think of it as a blue state because we sing, we swing blue at the national level. Um, but the fact is, county by county, we're really a purple state. Um, it, you know, most of most of of the the, the liberal uh, voters are in the eastern part, and the western part of the state is can be very red in a lot of places. Um, it's a lot like California, and increasingly like Texas. Um, Democrats and Republicans and uh, third party. You know, weirdos like yourself, Stephen. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, uh, Freaks. You know, yeah, we, we, we all live among one another nowadays. We elect Repu- Massachusetts elects Republican governors often. Um, we had a Republican senator from 2010 to 2013. Um, so you know, some people think that you know there's this blue wall, um, and I think that that's more and more of the U.S. as a whole. Um, so when we start to think about states' rights and having these this patchwork, it's not on a, it's not on a state by state level. It's it's on a on a, on a municipality mm-hmm. level these days, it, yeah. or even within it's on a neighborhood level. I I want to see a future where like the city is resurgent as as these really like places where you sort of make the world that you that you want to see that like cities become people's main form of political expression um there's a couple like you will find it here in connecticut i know it's it's so cool like there's like the the urbanism community people are like always talking about how like the city state needs to make a comeback um but you know like david david french and in sort of he spelled out how federalism is sort of played out in the immigration debate I, i mentioned it regarding arizona and he was like 
you know, like federalism empowers California to promote sanctuary city policies by not obliging their local law enforcement to assist ICE agents. And the rest of like, you know, conservative America is like, oh, my God, that's like ghastly. But then like Arizona kind of does the opposite of it, where they're like, well, actually, we're going to encourage cooperation with federal agents on uh, on on law enforcement Um, and possibly, I think, some civil rights abridgments to the point of, you know, I think the area where they went too far was like anybody who who was stopped by law enforcement could like be carded and asked to present their information and all that. It was like, you know, dealing with the Gestapo and they're like, yeah, show me your papers. Um, That's not right. But like the the point is that you sort of have those two different poles, right? Uh, Trump sued California, Obama sued Arizona, and you're just going to always get this. And and you're always going to get people wanting to like go after the states where it's just not your dreamland. And you have two, I think, different options where you're like, all right, so I either have to we accept the status quo, which I think is headed in a really rotten direction Mm -hmm. where we're sort of all like warring with each other all the time. We're not letting any localities do what they want to do, which reflect the majority of their people. Uh, And the other alternative is we really embrace the idea of forming the worlds that we want to see living in those communities, moving to where those communities are, and then trying our best to leave the other ones the hell alone as much as is possible. But both of those options stink because the option that involves leaving people alone kind of involves you sort of giving up the fight to beat those people. (laughs) And that's, that's, that's not natural. Like that's not our natural instinct is to like give up the fight. Um, and they certainly tried that with the North and the South, the abolitionists hated the Southern States, the Southern States hated the abolitionists and they murdered each other constantly during peacetime. And then they eventually still went to war. Um, I, I, it's just neither option is, is necessarily good. So I just kind of been wondering like, but which one's better? And I, I, I just feel like that new age federalist option is the better option. I, I would kind of, I, I don't want to say I agree with you. I want to say like somewhere in the middle of agreeing with you, <laughs> um, because that's kind of what happened to me was I moved out of, of Florida, which is, Florida, um, to Connecticut and Connecticut is obviously a blue state. You know, we have more, we're social, more social justice minded, um, you know, more liberal minded, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's a huge, um, culture shift in terms of people being involved in local and state politics. Um, but at the same time, you know, take what's happening with COVID, for example, you know, Connecticut and working with our, our kind of regional states um, was kind of on the forefront of, you know, implementing masks and all of these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Whereas I still have extended family in Florida that, you know, can't go to the grocery store or, you know, are confused by what, you know, they're seeing on the news versus what the governor is saying. So, you know, it's, it's this kind of, I can't fully put Florida in the rear view mirror right, right. because I still have family there and I still have people, even if it wasn't just family, I have friends there, you know, colleagues, you know, from when I work there and, and all of that kind of stuff yeah, that your I fellow, would your fellow Americans, your to, loved ones. Yeah. That, that have to live in those conditions. So 
it's, it's tough to kind of put anything, you know, you can't just kind of, unless you have no family, no connections, no nothing, and just kind of pack up and leave a state you don't like and put yourself in your dream world, because there's going to be people in that home state that will be affected by those same conditions. You know, um, one thing, you know, Massachusetts, Massachusetts has a lot of problems, but one thing we get right I think is bipartisanship, bipartisanship and uh, political moderation. Um, y- y- you can't forget that it's a Republican who came up with a template for Obamacare. Um, yeah, and- I've been dying to ask you about that this entire time. Well, yeah, <laughs> what's up? <laughs> Oh, it was just like the Mitt Romney thing, like, yeah. like, like, like Romney care, right? It's like the experience, it's the uh, laboratory of democracy thing where the policy was born in Massachusetts, but then wrongly, I think people were like, well, then let's take it national. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a whole different podcast. Um, <laughs> um I, you know, I, I, I think Mitt Romney did tool for a lot of reasons, but I think he did two good things and that, that was, um, you know, the healthcare, uh, uh, plan yeah. and also after for, balancing your budget in, in Massachusetts. I think Baker's in a better, much better job. But, uh, the second thing Romney did was, uh, open up comp- competition between, um, car insurance, but that's a yeah. very local issue. I'm way off ta- uh, target here. Um, the, the thing is, you know, right now we do have a Republican governor in Massachusetts who literally has a better approval, approval rating among Democrats than his democratic prede- predecessor. And what does that tell you? Bipartisanship is possible if we start to allow, I don't want to say the rule of law, but I want to say that if we allow laws to actually be enforced um, at the national level and at the fe- at the federal level, that, that, that actually help people live their lives better. And I think that what we've seen is an erosion of the federal power to enforce um, civil rights at a state by state level. And I think that, that a lot of states have been testing the waters on how powerful they can be and how independent they could be in, in, um, what Joe, you, I think, what I think you just introduced secret option numbers or, or letter C to our suite of, uh, of ways to save the Republic. So, so there was, there was one in which we continue on the current course and end up destroying each other. There was, uh, option B, which was we, uh, we embrace federalism and start letting, you know, localities and states do what they want to do and try to leave each other alone and possibly still eventually destroy each other. And then option C was we combat polarization reduce otherness and we work on co-governance and trying to restore the zen of the 80s and 90s uh, in a more multiracial democracy and i i gotta say like option c i like option c that works you know mm-hmm. i think that's a that appeals to a lot of people most people do not want to destroy um their their partisan opposites they do want to work together they just don't know any of those people that they might potentially work with and gabby i guess i want to ask you does that appeal to you it does it does because i think you know coming here in connecticut a lot of what you hear um, in the state legislator is that's how politics used to be. You know, you could go toe to toe with, you know, a Democrat could go toe to toe with a Republican on the floor of the chamber for hours and hours. And then, you know, five in the morning, they'd slap each other on the back, leaving the chamber and go to a local diner and, you know, shoot the, the breeze. Like that's, that's how it used to be that they could be friends and have, 
different politics, but still be friends. And I think there's a great yearning in the country to return to that. Like you said, to return to the times of the eighties and nineties when things were kind of okay, relatively. Depending on who you are. (laughs) Yeah. Depending, depending on who you ask. Well, we have gone for longer than I planned on going. Uh, but this has just been so much fun and there's still just so much I want to get to. Um, but I think we need to kind of round down to a close here. So <sighs> I guess with the election, it is it is in 48 hours. Um, we're going to be in the in the midst of the 2020 election. Are y'all going to be OK? Are, are, are we going to be OK? Um, Joe, I, I want to give you the opportunity to go first and then Gabby and then. We'll uh, close out with Bantha fodder. Are we going to be okay? I truly don't know. Um, going back to something I said earlier, uh, you know, no matter what happens on election night, the other party doesn't go away. The people there go away, especially if Joe Biden wins. The Proud Boys don't go away. You know, th- th- that they're, they're still going to be there and the, the hate is still going to be there and the opposition is going to be there. Um, I, I think you asked both of us, do we want to see political moderation return? And I think the answer is yes. But I think that we need to ask conservatives if um, if they want political moderation, um, if they want to work together still. And because I think on the other side of the aisle, that has not been um, something to be praised. Uh, and I still don't, it, it still won't on November 4th. And I think that that is really a, um, a big, big crisis. So if Biden wins, um, there's a potential for things to get a lot worse. And if Trump wins, it's definitely going to get worse, <laughs> um, uh, you know, just because of, of the unfettered nature of the oligarchy and aut- autocracy. Um, you so, always come back to the oligarchy, Joe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's our country. That's that's what he runs. Um, you know, the, the select few rich are ruling this country. Um, not that that's been much different for a lot of administrations, but uh, that's, that's sort of my my, my big hang-up. Um, anyways. Well, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I really don't know, but I really... I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that things, um, you know, like Obama said, the, the, the long... Um, arc of history. Yeah, the long arc of history uh, swings toward the, the positive. So that's, yeah. that's my hope. I'm, I'm, I'm the opposite. I think, I I mean, I don't know if everything's going to be, you know, sunshine and rainbows and I, I doubt that it is, but based on as close, the closer we get to election day, the more I think of election day or post-election, uh, in 2016. Um, and I remember going back to law school, I was in the civil justice clinic at the time and we cried and we cried for all of um, the day after the election. You know, we, we were concerned. We had trans clients. We had LGBT clients. We had immigration clients. And we, were, we cried about what it meant for our personal lives and what it meant for our clients. Um, and then we looked at each other and said, OK, now what? Now what steps do we take? How do we keep pushing, moving forward and kind of changing our own little corner of the world? So the world will keep spinning. You know, if, if there's anybody out there that's kind of concerned of, of what happens, listen to some Tracy Chapman, cry if you need to, drink some wine if you need to, and then just keep going. Like, because the world will keep spinning. It will. And you just keep moving forward. That's like 
as a, as a millennial that's kind of seen the dramatics every year, I can guarantee you that's what's going to happen. Gabby Martin, I'm going to, I'm going to let you have the closing <laughs> word on that because, uh, I was going to be doom and gloom. Um, that brings us, that brings us to our Bantha fodder segment where our guests and myself can share something that has been on their mind, politics, star Wars, or otherwise, and share uninterrupted and unabridged. And I'm going to give the honorary first fodder to Gabby Martin. Tell us what's on your mind. What's your fodder? Um, I will kind of pick up from what I was just saying about moving forward, which is get involved with local politics. That has been like my marching cry, my battle cry. This whole election is look at local politics, look at down ballot candidates, just focus on your little corner of the universe and focus on making it better because you can, because I know that's another kind of overblown trope of, you know, your voice can make your voice heard and all of that, um, (laughs) kind of talk, but, but it's true. If you kind of open the door and get on a city council, get on a town board, um, which, you know, you can do regardless of where you come from, regardless of your background, you just have to start asking those questions and go force your, if rooms, if, if rooms and doors are not opening to, to you, open them for yourself, push those doors open, break down those doors, get into those rooms, um, and get your foot in the door, make your voice heard in those rooms because you can change your own little corner of the universe and your state possibly too. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my soapbox. Kick down the doors, even if they have a no disturb sign on them. (laughs) Joseph Tavano, what's your fodder? Wow. Um, Gabby, that was so well said. And I, 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 agree with everything you said wholeheartedly um yeah uh make sure uh, you know uh fight against people who believe in voter suppression right you have to you have to um you know make sure that that is something that um does not is not allowed to continue um i just want to maybe i'll do a little palate cleanser here and uh steven i'll i'll, I'll share in our, my bantha father fodder what um what i was saying to you before we recorded here um when it comes to covid um you know, I live in Salem, Massachusetts. It's the Halloween capital of the world. And uh, I just got done with uh, 31 days of horror movies every single night, sometimes twice a night, because I have nothing else better to do because we're living in a pandemic. And, you know, it got me to thinking a lot about why I've been able to adapt so well to the pandemic and, um, you know, the sec- you know sequestering of, of my entire life in, in the, the walls of my house. Um, and that's because I walked, I watched The Walking Dead. Um, I'm a big, huge zombie fan of have been since the, the <laughs> 90s. And, you know, something I, I feel like uh, for those horror movie fans and those zombie fans around the world, I think that, you know, we we were prepared in a lot of ways to <laughs> mentally to adapt to uh, the situation and understood what it took to survive. Um, and it's a lot of boredom. It's a lot of boredom. And anyone who's watched The Walking Dead knows all about boredom. So <laughs> I think that, um, you know, I just want to want to leave it at that and say, you know, watch a watch a horror movie and uh, start to prepare for the worst uh, while you hope for the best. 
Joe and I talked about this a little bit before the show, and I, I kind of identify with the readiness for post-apocalyptic scenarios. Um, but my final thing will be, uh, my fodder is a book recommendation. I have been spending the pandemic reading, which is kind of new for me, honestly. I, I usually am just a lot, a lot of podcasts, but I've been putting down some books, and I adore one Billion Americans by Matthew Iglesias of Vox. He's one of the co-founders, along with Ezra Klein of Vox.com. One Billion Americans is a manifesto of policy laying out the case for why we should have a population in the United States of one billion, as opposed to the current 300-something million that we currently have, which Matt Iglesias argues is not nearly enough people to be competitive with the rising powers of the modern world. And he couches this in an optimistic, forward-looking future where we are living, you know, in in really high-tech societies, a little bit more uh, clustered and, and a little bit more dense. But we're a big, big, big landmass, and we can accommodate more people. And the only way he thinks that we can meet the challenges of the 21st century is actually to have a rising population instead of a declining one which we currently are on set to do, at least in relation to our biggest foes. And what Iglesias does in this book is he sort of breaks a bunch of like left and right narratives about uh, population size and why we should strive for more. He really appeals uh, to, I think, the right in like a national greatness project that like one billion is what it's going to take for America to be great in the 21st century and to remain number one. And he makes a sort of a patriotic case that like, you don't want to live in a world where China is number one. Like that's not going to be a good and better and more free world. Uh, just look at what they do um, to censor and change the things that come out of Hollywood. And so he's like, well, if you want to change the way that movies are made and, and have people not be bending over to Chinese interests where they suppress human rights and 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 downplay human dignity. Well, we got to have more people than China. We got to have a bigger market. And he also argues that we can take on climate change by having more people here creating and creating the mechanisms and the technology that it's going to take to actually reduce climate change. And you can't just take the argument that oh, well, we don't want to have more people in the United States. We want people to live in poverty uh, in other countries around the world. No, we want them to come here become more wealthy, produce more emissions, but create amazing technology that is going to change the future. He, he changes the argument entirely, and I really want you to consider reading it and consider challenging some of your beliefs uh, with one billion Americans. So pick out, go out and pick that up. Um, that brings us to the end of this episode. Big thank you to my guests, Joe Tavano and Gabby Martin. Um, Joe, Gabby, this was so much fun. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Had a blast. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. We have a newsletter, uh, Beltway Banthas. Uh, it is called Politicize Me. You can subscribe to that at politicizeme.substack.com for weekly insights on politics and pop culture from yours truly and also get exciting updates. It would mean the world to me to be in contact with you via that platform and to get to know each other better. So that is politicizeme.substack.com. You can follow our panel today on Twitter. 
Gabby Martin at Gabby the ESQ. I assume that's Gabby the Esquire, Gabby the ESQ. And it is. at Joey Juan <laughs> Kenobi for Joe Devano. That's at Joey Juan Kenobi. And you can find me at Beltway Banthas. This has been another episode of the Beltway Banthas Roundtable. We will be back later this month, probably with a sneak episode uh, recapping the election results, if we have any, and the Mandalorian season two return. <laughs> and then we will be back in December with your regularly scheduled monthly episode. It has been a pleasure to host you this evening. This is Stephen Kent signing off. May the force be with you this week, this month, this season, and the rest of this year, always. Always.